once in a species. It's this transition from analog to digital. And we've, we've done that with information. That's the internet. And that has played out over the last 30 years. And right now we're 10 years into the complementary digital revolution of the digitization of value in the same way that we digitized information. And the difference here is that you can own a slice of this internet. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Wherever you are, whatever you're up to, good day and welcome into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. In this episode, Josh and myself, Dan, are joined by Cresus. Cresus is a pseudonymous Bitcoin thought leader, and his background includes an MBA from one of the best business schools in the world and considerable time spent working as a management consultant with a focus on disruptive tech trends. His articles and contributions have really stuck out to the two of us, so we asked him to come on the show, and boy, are we glad he accepted our invitation. It's hard to pick favorite Bitcoin conversations, but this one is certainly in contention. We found this hour and a half incredibly meaningful and profound. In this RIP session with Cresus, we cover topics including how incredibly significant Bitcoin is for our species, how early we are in the Bitcoin adoption S-curve, Bitcoin supply shocks and supply mechanics, and why all people, the middle class in particular, are in desperate need of this technology. The best way to interact with Cresus is through Twitter. He is at Cresus underscore BTC. That's at C-R-O-E-S-U-S underscore BTC. And pinned at the very top of his Twitter profile is a compendium of his major works. Highly recommend you look into this. A couple quick housekeeping items before we get into it. If you want to get in touch with us, feel free to shoot us an email to bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, check out the support section down in the show notes. Our tips are also now open on Twitter. We are at blue underscore collar BTC. Now, without further ado, enjoy the episode. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Crisis, welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. How you doing? Uh, I'm excited to be here uh, as, as we were just talking about it before. This is, I think, the one of the cooler um, demographics, one of the cooler podcasts out there because the the blue collar angle on Bitcoin is awesome and one that's underappreciated, and I think is a big part of Bitcoin's future. Um, you you just buttered our muffin. I'm now going to blow some smoke <laughs> up your ass and say, um, you. So I first interacted with you through the episode you did with Preston. And I will say that episode hit me like a ton of bricks. And it is, in, it is one of the best Bitcoin podcasts I've ever heard. And thinking through why, I just think you have a really unique ability to distill and simplify important themes, some of which I've heard, some of which I haven't. But your ability to synthesize complex themes so that they're digestible for the average person is, is second to none. So... I'm going to make a bold prediction. Here's Dan's bold prediction. I, I think in the next hour or two, we are going to blow some freaking minds. 
Yeah, if you want to keep your head intact, I recommend you turn this thing off. <laughs> I want to just add, I want to add to that. The metaphors, uh, what, I, what I love about your writing, and I've read, I think, all of it in the last day or two. Oh, cool. Is the metaphors that draw parallels to history, especially like the American West parallel you drew yeah. there, is forefront in my mind. And it, it like the, the thought that people kind of view modernity as the end, end all be all, is ridiculous obviously everyone in history has thought that like this time that we're living in right now is the preeminent time and everything else is nonsense everybody yep. believes that in their own stasis you know mm-hmm. but that really drawing that to the forefront and realizing like we're really in the uh you know maybe the 1860s here as far as this production is concerned with bitcoin is, is something powerful yeah, yeah. awesome I'm, I'm glad that you were just stewing on that one because that yeah, that I, I think it, it goes hand in hand with um, with speaking to uh, a blue collar audience here too about like here's the opportunity for Bitcoin in the same way that the West represented an opportunity for families for all of America's history. It's the same thing. It's the same themes. I know you're not going to dox a whole lot here, but who the hell are you? Fill our audience <laughs> in on who you are, how you came to Bitcoin where your headspace is at this day and time. Sure. So um, I guess part of, part of why I have a, a, a little bit of a unique um, space, I guess, in terms of Bitcoin education is uh, my background is as a management consultant. So that's what, how I spent my 20s working for you know, one of the, the top management consulting firms um, on 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 disruptive tech trends in particular. Um, and I went to business school during, during that time too and went to the best business school in the world. Um, so I've seen, I've been steeped in, you know, the, the best possible business education backgrounds that you could hope for. Uh, and, and also have been equipped through management consulting to, to, distill information into visual graphics and, and slides. Um, so that's kind of my skill set. And then that's how I approached trying to understand Bitcoin too, was crunching the numbers in Excel for myself and um, trying to reduce what's going on here in terms of the, the, the business lessons from the last half century of technology that I, I've been um, trained in through through my MBA program and and uh, as a management consultant focused on tech. So that that's kind of my, that's my background. That's my angle. And that's, um, I think, why I have a, a little bit of a, of a unique space in terms of Bitcoin education, be, just because I'm bringing those tool, tool sets, which are a little bit differentiated from, from um, most people who are in Bitcoin today. As far as doxing yourself, you're known as Croesus. That's the handle you use on Twitter. What, uh, what, what kind of pushed you into that, uh, that name? What was it about it? Yeah. So that, that name, um, so Saifedean talks very briefly about King Croesus, um, in, in the Bitcoin standard. King Croesus was the king of Lydia, modern, which is modern day Turkey, um, sort of about 600 years after, uh, the Trojan war in the same part of the world there in Asia Minor. Um, and Croesus 
presided over a, a big landmark step in the history of monetary technology, where um, that he, he was the the king under which the we had the first ever um, standardized coinage of of a, a bimetallic system of gold coins and silver coins with the stamp of the king put on top of um, you know these standardized units of metal standardized weightages of metal um, and that was a, a big step forward in in money because before that time uh, if you were going to engage in trade you had to you know, I don't know get out your your bag of gold dust and weigh it right and 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 somebody would have to trust that you hadn't put some you know some lead in the middle of that uh, bag of dust also and um, you know so there was this friction involved in in evaluating what you were being offered um, if you were about to conduct trade and so therefore standardized coinage significantly reduced the friction involved in money and in trade and when you zoom out and think about the progress of monetary technology through history, that's a big stepping stone um, mm. of, of making money better and then making money more useful. Um, and so I thought about, you know, so that hit me as like, you know, Bitcoin is another stepping stone in this long lineage of money getting better through the natural evolution of superior monetary technologies. And people embrace those things because they have advantages like reducing friction in trade. And with Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin reduces friction in digital commerce, but also much more importantly, reduces the, the um, uh, problems inherent in alternative forms of money like inflation with the dollar or centralization with gold. Um, so that's why when I read about Kinkresis, it struck me as, as wow, this is... This is a historical example of how um, improvements in monetary technology inevitably win, um, and and this and so my choosing that name that handle is a a nod to that anecdote and and also the history of money. That's an incredibly well thought out handle. Look, most people would be like, "Oh, uh, you know, my dog's name was Sam, so it was Sam zero one three two. So basically what I just took from that, Croesus, I just checked it out. King Croesus was 560 BC. So basically what you're saying is we're staring down the barrel of a once in thousand year event here with Bitcoin. This is essentially an ice age is what you just said. Yeah. Um, yeah. VJ likes to talk about, I've, I've, I've tried to corner him on this one, but he always dodges it. Um, he, he talks about Bitcoin as a, as the biggest advancement in, in monetary technology in a thousand years, and uh, in my mind, I, that doesn't make sense because I can't think of a of an advancement that was bigger <laughs> ever. <laughs> so, so I, like looking back a thousand years, you know, th th this uh, advent of standardized um, coinage was twenty five hundred years ago, and and maybe you could say that's a top three or top five advancement in, in money, but uh, I think Bitcoin's bigger. So I think it's you know bigger than a once in a millennia. I think it's once in a species. It's a transition from, yeah. um, from analog money to digital money, and that only happens once. Yeah, this is like a type zero to type one 
species event where you go exactly. from like harnessing less than the energy of your sun to the entire energy of your sun. What is it? The Kardashev? Um, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah and, and Dyson spheres and, and that whole idea, which I, I think, I think, you know, I don't think it's direct, but it is an indirect, um, fuel for that kind of, uh, I don't know, it's a tailwind to the rapid, uh, advancement of energy production for the world because Bitcoin mining creates such amazing incentives for any unused energy to be monetized. I just got chills up my spine. It's not going to be the last <laughs> of this conversation. <laughs> so the, you've been on record. I've heard you say it a few times. Bitcoin isn't about technology. It's about money. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so, so I started as an altcoiner. I started as uh, an Ethereum person. Um, some people at business school were buzzing about Ethereum. And so I looked into it and I went down that rabbit hole for a while. Um, and then Bitcoin outperformed Ethereum in 2018, 19. And I was forced to dig, dig deeper to try and understand why, why is this you know, technologically superior Ethereum smart contracts, yada, yada, can do everything. Um, why is it being outperformed now by old boomer coin Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that course of inquiry forced me to dig into you know, what really is Bitcoin? Um, and, and when you do that, you, that's really a study of what is money. And you start, have to ask yourself the question of what is a dollar? Why do I value it? Why is the dollar, why did it replace gold? Why was gold money? Um, and then you start to really get into, okay, so what are the properties of money? And how does a commodity become money. So then you're, you're looking deep into the history of money and the human nature of money. This is something that's so fundamentally broken. Like most people will never dive down that kind of a rabbit hole, you know? And like, yeah. like Nick Zabo's piece on uh, shelling out. I don't oh, know if you've so read good. that. But that, yeah, yeah. that is like a, a momentous piece written 20 years ago, long before any of this stuff was even, I mean, it was thought of obviously, but it was never finished yet. And it's just profound to, to talk to somebody who's just this deep down that because I, yeah, I just feel like I had that same experience and I think you're doing a better job of enumerating it, but it's, I just love the parallel there. These themes are so simple, but they hide in plain sight. I Completely. mean, so few people flip these rocks over and they're right in front of their face their entire life. Yep. Nobody, nobody asks the question of what is money and and i you know that's why breedlove titled his podcast uh the what is money show because it's it's all about that you just have to start asking your, that question that's what parker lewis writes about as well um once you start really asking yourself that and you start to turn those stones over it it leads you to it leads you to austrian economics which is this sort of archaic forgotten uh, much maligned um, form of of branch of economics that um, in our modern central bank controlled economies, um, economists love to poo poo on because uh, fundamental to to Austrian economics is the inability of central bankers to print more money. Um, that that's that's uh, seen as <laughs> yeah. a as a pro as a strength of 
um, sound money regimes that Austrian economics generally supports. Um, and that is not what we have today and not what the Federal Reserve enjoys as its um, you know, luxury to print money whenever it needs to. Um, so, so Austrian economics has been you know, forgotten in time for the most part and, and sort of kicked to the side. But really that branch of economics is the study of free market money, right? It's the study of, of how does money come to be in society and, and what makes good money. And that historically has meant figuring out why gold emerged through thousands of years of human history as the dominant, the de facto money for all of the world. Um, and that's because its properties as a commodity make it the best for being money out of any of the, the possible commodities. Most importantly, because it is hard to make more of. So really, the shorthand for hard money, if you've heard that term and wondered what the hell hard money means, um, hard money is money that's hard to make more of. And, uh, and that's not true of the dollar, because the dollar, they're, you know, they're talking about minting the trillion dollar coin, which is, is unthinkable. <laughs> I, but I, That's actually something I had on the docket to bring up. You brought it up yeah. a little early, but my God, th- it, if there's anything that's going to show and reveal the emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. it's got to be this. Like when people are like, wait a second, they're going to take a one ounce platinum coin. They're going to stamp one trillion on it. And this is suddenly going to be an asset they're going to hold on the treasury or the Fed balance sheet. And that's going to make all the problems go away. Like, and you're printing money and handing it to me in my bank account every month. Like this is a, this is such a charade at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you guys probably remember that uh, there was the stimulus bill. There were a couple stimulus bills, um, stimulus checks that were given out in, in 2020. And I remember running the numbers on the second one in particular, the one that was in like fall 2020. Everybody got like people got like a thousand dollars. But the amount of money that was created in that stimulus bill, the the amount of dollars printed effectively for that stimulus bill was about four thousand dollars per person. And then they gave you a thousand dollars of that. Yeah. But basically, what they're doing there is is they're devaluing. You know, they're they're create they're paying themselves three dollars. They're and, yeah. and you know funneling that into whatever programs they want, and um, and giving you one and devaluing your assets in general by four thousand dollars. So they're devaluing your savings four thousand dollars and then giving you a thousand dollars as if it was a, a gift, mm-hmm. uh, as if you you so- somehow came out. Um, Right you know, in the in the green on this one, and people give it such a cursory look, like, "Oh, I got a thousand dollars! Like this is great. feels great to get a thousand dollars." But you don't realize that they're stealing from you. You're, they're stealing from your savings, from your wages, um, by printing that much more money. Because you know, let, let let's say you make let's say you make you know twenty bucks an hour, um, and suddenly they just printed so much money that in 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 twenty twenty they printed twenty six percent more dollars. So unless your wages went up 26%, you just lost ground. Yeah. Uh, and people don't realize it. And what's so insidious too, and this, this is, uh, we've covered this a lot on this show, but we can't do it enough because this, this, this is the stuff that hits our demographic the hardest. 
unfortunately, our demographic is some of the least prone to understand the inner workings of this reality. And mm-hmm. it hits us the hardest. And when you say, okay, M2 money supply goes up 25% in a year or whatever, that what's so insidious about it is that it doesn't necessarily mean that that, insertion, that, that money sloshing around is going to appear right away. Right? It's, it's right. gradual. It seeps in gradually. And I mean, even a lot of our peers at work, it's, it's like, I promise you, your buying power is going to get devoured over time yeah. if you don't do something yeah. about it. Well, it's like the, the young guys at work are having trouble buying a house. Yeah. Like they just can't afford to buy a house, at least not something decent, you know? Or at least it looks a lot different than guys on, that have been on the job 20 years had a lot easier time getting yep. their first starter home there than the go. average dude today. But that's happening so, slowly, right? I yep. think it's going to start speeding up. And we often yep. say that hamster wheel is just, it's spinning faster and faster and faster. And then you add in all the incentives that currently exist and the ease with which you can just way over expand in terms of how much you're spending and how easy it is. It's, it's like people have no free cash flow. They yeah. have a salary with a very hard ceiling and they're going to be in an inflationary environment in the future. That's where we're kind of on the lifeboats, Josh and I, screaming back at the Titanic saying, exactly. you at least need to take a hedge position to start thinking these realities through because they are significant. Yeah, and and it's that's that phenomenon is is squeezing blue collar guys more, um, but it's also squeezing my MBA classmates. Like, you know, I we're in our thirties, and most of us can't afford a house. And I went to the best business school in the world. That's crazy. Like, that's unthinkable uh, twenty years ago. But what this comes back to is, um, you know, the the last generation. The last generation had a different set of economic circumstances that they needed to um, navigate through their careers. And the biggest of which was in 1981, interest rates were 15%. So your mortgage was like 18%, something crazy, right? Like that's credit Mm -hmm. card rates. And that meant that people couldn't pay much for a house because the, the, the payments were killer. So house prices, you could buy a house for $20,000, $50,000 in 1981. And that house, if you just held it to today, where interest rates have been driven down in a pretty much straight line since 1981, down to zero, effectively, 0% now, um, that same house is a million plus, right? Like it, in California, where I am, that's the case. Um, yeah. And that's, that's unthinkable because all you had to do was just start to build equity in a house. And then maybe, maybe you had a 401k. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just relied on home equity. But because of the tailwinds of um, in, it, since 1971, you know, having the ability to print money, which started in 1971 when we went off the gold standard and now dollars are no longer backed, so you can print money. <clears throat> they've been able to manage down interest rates, which is um, a tailwind for for equity, uh, for real estate prices, and for equities markets um, in terms of their valuation. So, for the last f- fifty years, the forty years really, the winning strategy has been just build your portfolio of real estate and. Um, you know, and invest in your 401k and, and build your stock portfolio. 
and the the monetary policy does the rest of the work for you, right? Because you're, we've been driving down interest rates yeah. and your valuations are going up. And so if you just did that formula as a, as a blue collar guy in 1981, you're doing, you're doing well today. But if you're just coming up today, if you're a young guy who's starting out and you think that the same strategy is going to work for the next 40 years, yeah. you're shit out of luck because there's no more room to drive interest rates down. All they can do is print more and more money. And all that does is drive up asset uh, prices even more. So th- that house is going to get more unaffordable. And, and, you know, and, and the equities are going to go up even more probably. And your purchasing power from your wages is not going to keep up. So you're, you're shit out of luck if you want to play the same formula that you know, your dad or your grandpa did. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's obviously very negative. If you're playing the same playbook and you're not paying attention, you're going to get taken to the woodshed and it's not going to be good. But if you're watching what's going on and you're paying attention, you're somebody listening to this and understanding the ramifications of what we're saying, it actually counterintuitively presents you with an amazing opportunity. Yes. You, you've got an opportunity here if you're understanding and tracking with us to get yourself in a position to probably like, I mean, we've been talking about this is like a once in a, in a civilization event for an, a new money to, to be bootstrapped from nothing. And you could get on that life raft on, on that train and ride that thing to some serious, serious p- profit. If you understand the implications of all the things we're talking about right now. And it's yeah. vital that you do. Even just a small hedge position. Yes. Um, I think that's a good segue into one of the areas we want to explore with you, which is your valuation framework for Bitcoin. I know you yep. do this. You kind of have your valuation side, then you have your adoption side. Explain to us where you think we are in the adoption curve and valuation trajectory. Yep. So, so when I was getting into Bitcoin, um, you know, I was running the numbers. I was trying to size this market, you know, just just deploying the same tool. Get your thing. hands around this hog. We get it. It's tough. Yeah, yeah. That that would be the uh, the more uh, Midwest uh, <laughs> colloquialism for it. <laughs> we often call Bitcoin a slippery hog, Chris. Yeah, I love we, that. We actually have an <laughs> or episode. The, or the Wasn't was one of our episodes called? The slippery, slippery hog. Yeah, Lassoing a slippery hog. Yeah. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, had digress. Keep going. That's great. Um, yeah, so running the numbers, kicking the tires, um, trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's the potential size of this asset, this market? Wait, can you, can you, sorry, can you do us a favor, like in the future, I've heard you say, you know, run the numbers, kick the tires, just throw in there, get your hands around the, the slippery yeah. hog, you know, <laughs> that's your, that's just your wrestle the slippery that's hog. Third installment of your, of your, of your, all right. Yeah. So you got it. You got it for the future. Um, yeah, so so when you do that, you know, that forces you to to ask the question of what are we talking about here? What is this asset? And what what does it mean to people? Um so it is digital gold. Let's let's you know call it that for short. It's more than that, but it let's let's call it that. Meaning it is um the best store of value in the digital space. Um but it's also the best savings technology that, that I've ever encountered. Um, and what I mean by that is 
as an asset, it is designed to every four years get more scarce because every four years um, built into the built into the protocol, built into the code, you know, s- written in stone here is that every four years, the amount being mined every day gets cut in half, right? So, and we're now in the third era of that. Um, is that right? <laughs> uh, and we're in 50 to 25 to 12 and a half to yeah, 6.25. So yeah, fourth. Yeah, we're in the fourth era of that. And um, fourth epoch. Yeah, fourth epoch. And in three years now, um, we'll be in the fifth there'll be half as much being created every day. And that continues for the next 100 years. So um, from a supply demand point of view, there's half as much supply going out into the market to meet existing demand. And this, uh, this shock happens every four years, um, which causes when you've got suddenly not enough supply to satisfy demand, the thing that changes is the price goes up. Right? So that's what's that's what's built into the protocol, um, and so when you when you wrap your head around that, you realize that Bitcoin is guaranteed so long so long as um, on you know one month before the having and one month after the having, um, the same people who are interested in it one month before are interested in it one month later. The there's the, the same amount of demand. Um, it, there's not enough supply to satisfy that demand at whatever the price is at that point in time. And the price starts to drift upwards. And that's what we've seen happen consistently you know, in the one year following each halving. And that's going to keep happening every four years for the foreseeable future until everybody in the world realizes that Bitcoin is designed to appreciate in value every four years. And at the moment, most people don't realize that yeah. because when you start to look at, okay, so, th- so that's what Bitcoin is, right? So that's our first question that we really needed to answer. Bitcoin is a savings technology. It's digital gold, but it's a savings technology that's designed to get more valuable every, every four years. Now, what's the potential scale of that? How much money is there in the world that is looking for a store of value that has you know and and looking for a store value period right now there's um 400 trillion dollars in various store of value asset categories that's real estate debt equities um art collectibles the store value portions of those buckets sum up to 400 trillion so and and the those different buckets today are okay store of value assets None of them is designed to appreciate and value reliably over time because none of them has this unique quality of increasing scarcity built into it. And, and that's fundamentally because it's only possible to, have, uh, to design a system of increasing scarcity in the digital space. Right? In the analog world, you, you have no guarantee that, it's, that you can't make more of something over time. So it's only possible in, in the digital space and that means that it's only possible with Bitcoin to have increasing scarcity built into this asset. So you've got $400 trillion in assets looking for a great store of value. And now you have this store of value that has emerged 
that has better properties than any of these other store of value assets. Yeah. So let's say, you know, you're, a big chunk of this is, is debt, um, bonds. There's 230 trillion in, in low yielding bonds and another 20 trillion in negative yielding bonds. 20 trillion in negative yielding. That's the lowest yeah. hanging fruit on the tree, in exactly. my opinion. The last I heard, yeah, it was like 18, like a few months ago. I'm sure it probably is 20 yeah. by now. It's, the 20 was ballpark. I, it, when, I, when I looked into it six months ago, it was, it was around 20. Um, yeah, so that is the low hanging fruit. The majority of that money should, in theory, shift to an asset that has a, a reliable, you know, a, a guaranteed design of appreciating over time just based on its supply mechanics. Um, rather than than taking a, a one a negative one negative two percent hit uh, every year, just because they have no better idea of what to do with it, so the bulk of that should shift. That's also true of all of the the, the bonds, the the debt. You know, it may not be negative yielding, but it's very very low yielding. So you you may be getting one two percent on that debt, significantly uh, negative. Real rates for sure. Exactly, and if, and yeah. if you're printing 26 percent more dollars per year, you're losing money on on any on any value you've stored in bonds. Which and that's just like a you know a um, a, a shift in in our collective understanding of of these asset classes. Bonds historically have been a reliable thing to hold. I think uh, you know culturally a, a good chunk of that comes out of the the out of the depression. Where holding bonds was like a great um, safe haven that protected you from the downside of of a sudden crash in the stock market, but we're living in an era where like where that doesn't happen anymore because they can just print as much money as they need to drive the value of the stock market up, and in doing so, they're they're you know making bonds a less attractive asset to hold because they're printing so much more than the yield of the bond. Um, so anyway, the, you've got 250 trillion of bonds um, sitting in, in, in a shitty asset, something that's yielding nothing compared to the amount of money that's being printed today, and that's going to continue. So as bondholders keep watching Bitcoin go up, they're forced to individually recognize at some point in time this Bitcoin thing keeps going up. It keeps outperforming the bonds that I'm holding. And at some point, I'm going to switch. I'm going to sell my bond and move that money into Bitcoin. So there should be a shift, uh, uh, an osmotic flow of value away from these inferior store of value assets towards this in, like unmatched store of value asset who has this unique design of guaranteed appreciation of value because of its supply mechanics that no other asset can match. So that's yeah, there's a long-winded way to to set the stage for like what is the scale of this thing. I think the scale of this is is perhaps conservatively. I think I think it's, it's probably ballpark correct. Um, something like half of that 400 trillion in today's terms. So that's 200 trillion dollars in today's terms. That comes out to ten million dollars per Bitcoin, which makes me bulk. Like that, that feels crazy. That's 
pretty unthinkable, but that's what the that's what the logic kind of points towards is that you know why would you hold anything else? Nothing else is as good of a store of value if you're really seeking a, a good store of value asset. This thing that keeps outperforming every other store of value asset should take the lion's share. Yeah, I think that one of the things that that really caught me when I was reading the, your article about that is not only, I mean, I understand the halving every four years. That's something I think a lot of people get. But the other side of the equation where you have more and more constituent people understanding and getting on board, compounding that having, yes. and that is the really powerful um, yeah. thing so, that so struck home for me on that. It's like, damn. Let's get into that side of it then too. So, so we've got a, a total total potential full potential of 200 trillion 10 million dollars per bitcoin um and that seems crazy but then in you can, today's dollars in today's dollars right and you can sense check that by assessing okay how early is it though like bitcoin's everywhere it's all over the news there's no way it's that early right like we're we're 50,000 and you're talking about I think it's a, a pretty safe, I think it's a very high probability, you know, over 90% probability that this thing goes to a million dollars. I think it logically goes to $10 million. Um, so you're talking about a very high probability of a 20x. Uh, how is that possible if it's all over the news and, you know, it feels like I already missed the boat? Then you look at the numbers on how many people have actually adopted it. and. Luckily, because Bitcoin is, you know, it's an open network, we can see how many addresses there are with how much Bitcoin in them. There are 3 million addresses with 0.1 Bitcoin in them. Um, so that's $5,000 of Bitcoin. Um, and a lot of people keep their Bitcoin on an exchange. So let's, you know, round that up and call it 10 million people uh, have, have $5,000 saved in Bitcoin. Um, and how many people are there who will eventually adopt this savings technology if it is what we've sort of stepped through the logic of, uh, you know, a superior savings technology, a superior store of value asset? Well, there are 2.2 billion people in the world with $10,000 or more of net worth. So those are kind of, that's kind of your market. Those are people who have savings are your potential market for superior savings technology. So if we have 10 million of 2.2 billion, that's only 0.5% penetration. Um, that puts us really early in, in, in um, what we call the technology uh, adoption S-curve. So if you think about how any technology is adopted, whether that's internet or, or um, cell phones or radio or television, uh, it starts out really slow at first and then it starts to pick up, right? And so you start to move through the, the you know, up and to the right quickly and then it tails off as the, the laggards finally slowly adopt this technology. So that shape kind of looks like an S um, on, a, on a graph and that's the technology adoption S curve. But if we're only half a percent up the y-axis and you know and eventually we'll reach 100 saturation that puts us very very early um in in the total 
journey of this technology. Um, that puts us in in the uh, in the early half, in the first half of the innovators um, category of adopters. If you have if you have innovators as your first two two and a half percent, and then um, early adopters, and then uh, early majority, late majority, and then laggards in, in as the sort of cohorts of people who eventually adopted technology. We're still in, in the first part of the first chunk. So even though it feels late, it's still very early for Bitcoin as a savings technology. And that's why there's so much opportunity for, for everybody today to wrap their heads around it now and take advantage of how early it is and how little most of the, most of the world still knows about Bitcoin and what and the opportunity that it creates for them and their families and their financial futures. I think you are spot on with the fact that the level of Bitcoin entrenchment is massively over-exaggerated. You know, you mm-hmm. hear statistics like the 100 to 180 million people. When I think through just my small circle, I see a lot of people that have tiny Bitcoin positions, almost just like gambling on FanDuel, just something on their phone that they don't give a shit about. The number of people in my life that actually have a meaningful Bitcoin position or a position that they view as an an actually important investment is so much smaller than that broad scale of people that have some level of involvement. That's the beauty of on-chain analytics. And I understand, like you said, we, we, we don't know how those wallets like Coinbase are divvied up, but the level of involvement on a meaningful scale is still so incredibly small. And another thing you hit on a few minutes ago that I just, I beat this drum, we beat this drum just hard as hell, but it, it is so true and it is unique to this specific asset. All you have to, all you have to start with somebody is, do you think demand is going to go up? Like, do you Mm -hmm. think that demand for the first truly internet-native, censorship-resistant, bare digital asset is going to go up over the next 10 to 20 years? If your answer is yes, which I think you're crazy if your answer isn't yes, once you kick the tires on this and get your hands around the hog. (laughs) If your answer is yes, buy some. Because it's mathematically guaranteed to go up in price. And this is such a simple theme. You do a great job covering it. But I just don't think people have wrapped their heads around programmable, algorithmic, inelastic supply schedule. It is the first time we've ever encountered this. And it's a big fucking deal. Yeah, spot on. That. Yeah, that... Uh, we don't have any basis for comparison. And and so it like when I was early in my Bitcoin journey, it would have made me very uncomfortable to hear um you know, oh this thing is is mathematically guaranteed to go up. You know, that just that just sounds yeah like Dumb. a scam, just right? Stupid. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just it like sounds, the ten million dollar the ten million a coin thing yeah, sounds, sounds stupid. idiotic. And that's why guys like us cop out. It's funny to say this, we cop out and say Oh, it'll reach gold's market cap and it'll be $500,000 yeah. a coin. But the reason so much we do that, the reason that. I yep. do that is just so I sound sane. Because truthfully, <laughs> understanding, the, understanding the fundamentals 
if this thing goes to $500,000 a coin, I promise you it's not stopping there. Right. The hog and, and, has gotten out of the pen. Yep. And, and that's true at every price level too. Like, you know, I think you could, you could reasonably say at $1, if it gets to $100, this thing's going to go to 1000 you know, and if it gets to ten thousand, we're yeah. it's fucking made it, and we're going to a hundred. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember who said this on a podcast I listened to recently, but when you're sizing up an investment for like a, a VC fund or whatever, one of the first things that they're talking about is total addressable market. Like, okay, what is the size? How big did this thing get? So, like, am I going to waste my time on this, or is it worth my time? And as you enumerated with some of your articles here, like. The total addressable market for this thing is literally the entire world. Like there is yeah. no, there's it's nothing the in the world value. that's, there's no investment in the world that's ever had an addressable market the size of this. This is the whole hog. This is everything. Yeah. yeah. How many, how yeah. many times do you think we're going to say hog in this episode? How many hog <laughs> references can we end it, dude? In here? And we, we warned you about profanity. We didn't warn you about how many times we would say hog. <laughs> we're, dude. We're hog maximalists in this episode. All right, from here on out, we just refer to it as the Kraken. Croesus, your 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 buddies from school yeah. and shit, they have to think like when you throw numbers out like this, they 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 have to think you you're off your rocker. Correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, they yeah, do. What's the status and of those guys? Are they coming around yet? Where's Dan at? Give us a Dan <laughs> update here. Oh yeah the the latest Dan update. I I talked to him recently at a wedding. And he was was trying to poke holes in the thesis, and I was like, "All right, it's not there yet." But but I knew that he, you know, he's one of the bigger holdouts. I think you know, there's a lot of pride on the line too for yeah. for some of these guys. Where you know, if you take a, um, a anti Bitcoin stance or like a you know, a, the Bitcoin is going to go to zero stance, there's no intrinsic value, uh, then you're kind of forced to keep doubling down on that or uh, eat your pride. You know, you, at some yeah. point you're forced to do that. So yeah, that I think, I mean, my experience has been that when the price runs, some incremental slice of that group, uh, finally, um, capitulates and buys some, you know, they finally get on board, uh, but they tend to do that, you know, after the price has been running. So close to a, a local high, and then they suffer through the inevitable downturn after that. Um, but they, but that pride keeps them holding, and then they, you know, usually don't add uh, in the downturn as they probably should. Um, but they keep holding, and then finally, when the next uh, rally happens, they um, feel great about it <laughs> for the first time. So I think I think we're heading towards that right now with um, the bulk of my MBA friends. There's I don't know. I'd, it's probably half of them who are who are in, even if they don't understand it yet, and they still think that I'm talking a little crazy. Um, they can't avoid the fact that I've I literally called this shot, you know, a year ago and <laughs> said this thing's going to a hundred. Um, this yeah you know, around this time frame, and here here we are on our way. So, yeah, I feel like this is an appropriate time. Somebody, uh, our Twitter conversation about it, people asking questions. So you mentioned your friends kind of buying in at some of the local tops. This person asked JT on Twitter, advice to new orange pilled folks, stay humble and stack sats or FOMO ape in. 
<laughs> so are we, uh, what's your advice to this guy? Ape in right now or just kind of send a uh, dollar cost average this thing? It's, it's funny that uh, if, if you guys couldn't tell, I'm so bullish that uh, it kind of blinds me a little bit. It makes it hard for me to understand how this thing doesn't just rip and never come down um, because I, I, I think that you know, logically, once people get to the level of understanding that, that we're already at, which is not a function of intellect, but just a function of hours spent. Like, it's clearly not intellect for us. <laughs> But I mean, so, it is. It's just hours in the in the yeah. in reading. It's, yeah. I mean, we're compared to some Bitcoiners, we're nothing. But we've we have each spent at this point thousands of hours. I mean, we're definitely yeah. both north of a thousand hours studying this. So, I, dude, I, almost every time I see somebody actually engage thoughtfully, they at least become interested. Yep, completely. And and I, I, my favorite an anecdote of that recently is Ray Dalio. Um, so Ray Dalio heads like the largest hedge hedge fund in the world. And after getting so much flack about like you know, like you're missing something about Bitcoin, you're missing something. You know, it, back in January, they he said he he finally said, okay, maybe I am missing something. And then what that means is behind the scenes, they're they're doing they're a little diligence. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they're doing their homework. <laughs> they're saying. That's an admission that maybe we need to do our homework. Maybe we need to like, do a diligence on Bitcoin and yeah. figure out if maybe we should hold some. Uh, and then a few months later, um, his, I think, like second in command uh, left that hedge fund, the Nidig. biggest hedge fund in the world, and took a job at a Bitcoin company, Nidig, um, because I guess he saw that uh, after doing his homework, there was something here. <laughs> when, you know yeah, when John Dalby left Bridgewater, I was like, holy shit. And yeah. the whole the whole Nidig thing is like for me, that was one of the biggest pieces of of this cycle. With we we just talked about John Dalby and then you touched on this, I think it was with Preston or maybe somebody else, how Ted Mathis from New York Life, chairman and yeah. CEO, is on the board of Nidig. Which like this which is, has this never is, happened in the history of that company. Yeah. This is huge stuff that Feels like early dominoes to me for a, yeah. a big setup. I, I'm, I know I've heard you say that you agree, but yeah, so give it's, us some so thoughts like, there. It, you know, so I've been saying the same. I've been saying the same shit to my friends for the last few years, and I've been saying this same message of like, you you dig in deep enough, this thing is it's inevitable that it's going up. And it's becoming a major part of the financial landscape. It's the most important asset of the 21st century. And that sounds crazy until you start seeing, um, you know, major insurance companies <laughs> placing the same kind yep. of bet, and then you start to see the the <laughs> the um, top talent at the biggest hedge fund in the world start to leave to go work on Bitcoin, like. What more validation are you looking for you from yeah. from institutional investors um, that those who have done their homework are coming out to some sort of you know maybe they're not on the on the level of like it's going to ten million but they're on the level of this thing's going to gold which mm -hmm. is five hundred thousand and and that means it's a ten x in the next ten years at least you know and I think that's I think that's uh, on the low side so. Yeah. 
that's what these guys are saying. These institutional investors who have spent their whole careers in on Wall Street and in in finance, you know, managing assets, and yet it's still so early because people haven't done that homework because it's it's uncomfortable. You you have to really challenge your own assumptions. You have to dig into um, some esoteric knowledge about what is money, which yeah. we've taken for granted, and it challenges your ego because you are a successful you know, person in finance and you think you already know it and suddenly you have to relearn what you thought you knew, but you realize you didn't know. So like, there's all these reasons why there's resistance to learning about Bitcoin. And that is why there's so much opportunity for the everyday man and woman to still be ahead of those um, at the top of Wall Street uh, just by, by learning about it now, just by being curious and and steeping in the available knowledge out there about Bitcoin now, you can front run Wall Street and front run institutional investors. Yeah. Um, and you know that that's indicated by where we are in the adoption curve, a half a percent in. But I think my favorite anecdote about that is is when you run the numbers, uh, you see that you know what how much. How much Bitcoin is there per person on Earth? There's 21 million Bitcoin, and there's 8 billion people on Earth. That means there's uh, 0.0025 Bitcoin per person. So that's 250,000 sats per person. And you can buy that today for $150. So you can get a person's worth of d- the digital store of value of the future, the most important asset of the 21st century. Um, for $150. So, you know, if, if Bitcoin takes over the world of money, it'll take a lifetime to accumulate that kind of, the average person will spend a lifetime acu- accumulating Man. that amount of Bitcoin. But you can do that with your, you know, setting aside $150 from your monthly paycheck and, and stack a human's worth of Bitcoin every month, you know, for as long as the price is where it is. Where it is. Uh, and that's the scale of the opportunity for for blue collar folks. You know, you can stack humans worth of wealth by setting aside some of your paycheck. It's truly not too late. Like that's something that I think so many people look at these numbers like it's 50. I don't know what it is right now. Fifty thousand dollars. I can't afford that. Like that's such a, a misnomer to think that you have to buy an entire Bitcoin. They're, everyone, you know, our our minds logically just think that we need to get to one, but one is there's only 21 million of these things in the world. That sounds like a large number, but in the scheme of things, that is extremely scarce. Yeah. There's and, 45 million millionaires. I think it's gone up from, that was a number from a year ago. So it's more than that now. Yeah. Um, there's not, there's not enough Bitcoin for every millionaire on earth to have one, especially since most of them are already accounted for. There's only 10% left to be mined. Um, and the, the scale of FOMO that's, that's coming um, as the, the supply realities of Bitcoin start to really set in mm-hmm. um, is going to really shock people. Because you know, if, if you think about only half a percent of the world has, a, has adopted Bitcoin as a savings technology, what does it look like when 10% of the world is competing for the same sats that are being mined every day. 
Right now, it's only half a percent of the world of, of that market competing for sats that are being mined. And then in three years, there's half as many sats being mined, but maybe there's five times as many people competing for that. And that's how you get this 10x competition for sats over a four-year period. So there might be 10 times as much competition for every, every Bitcoin mined three years from now, four years from now, than there is today. And, and that's just by looking at the numbers. So that's the scale of the opportunity in front of you. What you just enumerated is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but is essentially some of the math that underpins Plan B stock to flow. So right? I, did a, I did an analysis. So when Plan B put out his model in 2019, you know, this, this was an institutional investor um, from the Netherlands and very quant-driven. And, I, and I, that rang true to me as like, this is, this is familiar to me in terms of rigor and somebody who, who has a deep understanding of assets. So why the hell does he project this thing continuing at a 10x rate every four years? Because that's unthinkable. That doesn't make sense. You know, you, you can't grow 10x forever. Um, and so then I ran my own numbers of like, okay, w- what would have to be true? What, what does the you know, adoption curve have to say about this? Um, where are we in terms of current adoption? What does it look like when a technology is adopted? Well, you know, the bulk of the adopters happen in a 20-year period. Um, or like, let's say the next 20 years. So like if you, if you take the internet, it was World Wide Web was launched, what was it, 89 or something like that. Um, and, you know, it took 10 years for it to really pick up. And then it went nuts, right? Um, nuts. As, as you hit some sort of inflection point in mainstream adoption. Um, and then the following 20 years after that was the whole world, the bulk of the world getting onboarded to the internet. Um, so that's, I think, what we're looking at, you know, looking forward with Bitcoin. And if that's true, that would mean the bulk of the world adopting Bitcoin as a savings technology in the next 20 years, when we're currently at half a percent penetration. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I ran those numbers, that pointed towards, okay, if we're only at half a percent now, you get to 5%, um, you get to 2.5% in, in four years. So that's 5x. But you've cut the amount of Bitcoin being mined every day in half. So you have to factor that in. Now you're getting a 10x in, in adoption-adjusted scarcity in that four-year window. And that trend continues as you know, the, the front half of the adoption, the S-curve is an exponential growth function. That continues. And so the next 20 years, it looks like it, it can make sense for Bitcoin to grow 10x in terms of its competition um, and therefore its price uh, every four years for the next 20 years. Yeah, it's almost like Back in the early 2000s, you could buy parts of the internet by proxy, which is you could buy Amazon, you could buy Google, you could buy even a little later Facebook. And that was like a proxy to be able to buy some TCP IP, you know, because that's mm-hmm. what they were all built on. But this time, we have an opportunity to buy the actual network, literally. Like, it's an opportunity that 
none of us are going to see, I don't think, for the rest of our lives and cannot be, the exclamation mark cannot be large enough to emphasize yeah. this. It's, it, it's incredible. It's, it's once in a species. It's this transition from analog to digital. And we've, we've done that with information. That's the internet. And that has played out over the last 30 years. And right now we're 10 years into the um, complementary digital revolution of the digitization of value in the same way that we digitized information. Um, and the difference here is that you can own a slice of this internet, this internet of value by holding the, because, because it's a, a value system, somebody has to own the, the underlying units. The, the, the currency of the system is owned and ownable. Um, and therefore, you can be that owner. You can own your slice of the internet um, in 1995, right? Rather than, and in, you're sort of, by holding Bitcoin, you're owning a slice of all of the future growth and development and economic expansion of that entire ecosystem and all of the value that it creates and all of the value that is stored in it. Yeah. And you're just an early investor in that. Um, mind-blowing. Mind-blowing, yeah. It's almost like being able to own real estate, you know, in an yeah. early time when like, and, and you get a whole slice of that growing pie for the, in perpetuity. Yep. Like it's crazy. Some people, some people like to do, make the analogy of like, you know, this is like owning a chunk of Manhattan back when it was New Amsterdam, you know, back when it was just a trading post and empty land. Would you want to buy a, a few acres of Manhattan? Um, yeah, that'd be a great, great opportunity. <laughs> the, the, uh, the analogy that I like to make is to the American West. Uh, and so we touched on this at the, at the top, but uh, from the point of view of Americans in 1803, uh, America was complete, right? We had, we had cemented this Eastern seaboard focused country of, a, a, you know, a constellation of states that had taken over all of the natural, you know, land um, east of the Mississippi. Uh, and then the Louisiana Purchase happens in 1803. And suddenly the West is opened up for this, you know, westward expansion, this um, manifest destiny of American expansion from coast to coast. Uh, and that created so much opportunity for the people who were willing to take the risk and willing to venture into the unknown um, and put themselves out there. And so who, who were the people who benefited from early stakes in, in the American West? It wasn't the doctors and lawyers sitting in Chicago or, you know, or even really more like Boston and New York at that time. They weren't doing that because they had too much to lose. And it was too risky. It was too unknown. It was too outside of what they had, you know, built their lives around. So it was these enterprising, uh, daring individuals who wanted to build a brighter future for themselves and their families that were willing to take the Oregon Trail, willing to go out to, to you know, stake a claim of farmland in Oregon, and and assume the risks that go with that. Um, if you made it. If you successfully um, traverse the Oregon Trail in its in its first 
I think, decade or so, you were rewarded when you reached Oregon with 600 acres of farmland for you and your, you and your wife um, free of charge because that's how they were inviting people to come you know, build Oregon. Uh, and then that allotage, allotment um, got cut you know, over the ensuing decade down to like 100 acres or less and then you know 40 acres and then nothing right so it's the people who took the risk early who who really benefited they they secured the the prosperity of their family for generations to come by securing acreage land scarce assets in the future uh, in, on this this frontier of the future um just by getting curious and taking the risk early uh, and I and I think we're still in that that era. We're 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 in the gold rush sort of era of the American West with Bitcoin, where the mainstream is just starting to realize that that you know what Bitcoin is valuable in the same way that you know what land in California is valuable um, from the point of view of a of somebody sitting in Boston. They didn't they didn't give a shit about California in 1810, but by 1850 they were interested. Um, and, and that's sort of the evolution that we're seeing happen with Bitcoin as it, you know, this is often called the Lindy effect of it's been around for a long time and it continues to have value. So I'm going to start to value it because since it's been around so long, it's probably going to be around for a long time longer. Um, and so it's this, this whole cultural societal, um, process of Bitcoin becoming part of our cultural fabric and accepted as an asset in the landscape. And that, we're, you know, everything is pointing towards the continuing continuation of that mainstreamification. And yet you still have this opportunity to venture out on the Oregon Trail um, and claim your stake of the Bitcoin before everybody else arrives at this consensus that we've already arrived at that this is the most important asset of the 21st century and it's where I want to store my value. The digital gold rush. Mm, I, I, in your article, Bitcoin in the American West, which we'll link along with all your stuff in the show notes, I, I think you went down this train of thought, which, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically the idea that if you explored the frontier, let's say in 1820, you might have gotten out to Oregon and gotten your 600 acres and said to your wife, shit, I wish we'd come out here and landed on one of those gold mines. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's what you're thinking. Like, I wish the land that we had was on top of tons of gold. Look at those people we passed on the way out here. They got out here early. The same is true of a lot of people, I think, entering Bitcoin. It feels too late. Oh, God, I wish, I, I wish I'd gotten in when it was under a grand or under 10 bucks or whatever. And you want to just shake them. And I think this is what I was thinking after I finished your article and say, you still have the chance to get your 600 or your 300 acres out in Oregon. Seize it, because it's going to seem remarkable in the future once this frontier fills out. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. Like, if you, if you put yourself back into that moment in time, the first, let's say the, the, the first 100 people who came to Oregon, they got to pick 600 acres of the most prime fertile valley farmland, right? And that's theirs. 
and then the next hundred people come and they're jealous of the first hundred and they feel late because they don't have their pick of the <laughs> most prime land, right? And that's just, that's human nature. We're, we're always, we always feel late if we're not the first because we're always comparing ourselves to the people who are already there, wherever we are. Um, who's, who's already here? They're already ahead of me. Oh, I'm late. But you're not thinking about the 99.5% of people who haven't arrived yet. And they're going to come because this is the best savings technology in the history of the world, whose very design guarantees some amount of price appreciation every four years. And nothing else matches that. So everybody's going to converge on this thing as a, a major, if not the preferred part of you know, how they store their value. And 99.5% of people just haven't even considered that yet. So they're not on the trail. But you, if you're listening to this, you're probably on the Oregon Trail right now. And you're heading towards, you know, staking your claim. And, you know, yeah. even though you're probably kicking yourself for not doing it sooner, just you're watch still out for that really, really early. Yeah, you do got to cross a few rivers too. Yeah, that stuff will get you. I've never met a Bitcoiner that thinks they are early. When yeah. you enter, your your every single Bitcoiner is kicking themselves, wishing they got in earlier. I yep. I remember very well in 2017. It was July. I I threw 500 bucks in Bitcoin. I called my brother and I was like, "Hey, listen to this. I just spent 500 bucks and I bought 0.2 Bitcoin." And he's like, "Wait a second. You just spent 500 bucks on fake money?" He's like, yeah. are you fucking crazy? Like he had me as like so down about it for like a week or two. I was like, am I fucking crazy? Like, am I lost my mind? I was like, oh, whatever. I'll sit down. Now I look back on that and I'm like, I bought a fucking fifth of a Bitcoin for 500 bucks. Like that's yeah, insanity. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I wish I could go back and toss everything I had into it, but it's yep. just the nature of the game. It always feels expensive and it's and you always have regrets too. Like, yeah, there were a few things I could have done different. Several things I could have done differently, you know, by by a matter of months, and I'd have ten times the Bitcoin that I have. Oh, but I don't. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. It's because the, the uh, appropriate position size just changes incrementally yeah. over time. Like, yeah, I, I think you have a graph. Josh for that, remembers when when he introduced me in 2017. I took the bull by the horns. I did my we'll call it my couple hundred hours of research I took I love my spreadsheets based on my net worth I took what I thought was a meaningful position back then mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now I'm like and you dipped a toe <laughs> damn it I, I needed a bigger position back then but everyone's gonna go through this same stuff and you just gotta you gotta move forward yeah keep stacking because yeah today's prices in the future are gonna look they're going to look insane. People getting in yeah. under 50 grand, under 100 grand is going to look crazy before you know it, in my humble opinion. I think that was part of why I, I included that in the American West article. was a bit of a consoling myself of like, you know, I feel late and I feel like I don't have as much Bitcoin as I could have had. Um, but it really helps to focus not on the people who are already Bitcoiners and comparing yourself against them, but comparing yourself to the people who haven't figured out that Bitcoin matters yet, you know, and that's 99.5% of people. So if you, can, if you can take advantage of the fact that you can stack a human's worth of Bitcoin for $150, every time you manage to set aside $150, that's one human's worth of Bitcoin, 
then you know focus on that side of it and focus on how that is that's going to be a dream to most people yeah. who are who still haven't shown up on the scene yet plebs right. pause the episode okay pause it all right and go buy yourself 0.0025 bitcoin <laughs> a human's worth of bitcoin right fucking now okay yes. go do it I don't know if you guys have ever heard Elon Musk say this. It's one of, I mean, he says a lot of dumb stuff about Bitcoin, but one of the, uh, some of the stuff he says about entrepreneurship, I appreciate. And he said, being an entrepreneur is like chewing on glass and staring into the abyss. I think that's a great explanation of what buying Bitcoin feels like sometimes. <laughs> I mean, especially if you buy it at the wrong time, you bought, say, a meaningful amount and you just watch this thing go down 50% and like, I mean, like in July, we watched this thing go down 50% in like a matter of like three or four days. That is something that is literally chewing on glass and staring into the abyss. Like you, you got to make it through. It's, it is incredibly difficult. And people that think that you got lucky have no fucking clue what it's like to watch your net worth drop significantly while the shit is hitting the fan and manage to hold on. Like that is not an easy thing yeah. to do. And, and that's the nature of frontiers, right? Like, that, that kind of risk is inherent in frontiers. And, and when something is emerging, it's rapidly developing. There's volatility, there's risk. You know, if, if, you, if you were sitting in Illinois in 1830 and you decided sight unseen to, you know, to buy a claim of California, that would be staring into the abyss and signing your life away on some piece of paper and hoping that that was a good idea having no idea how that was ever going to work out. And then, of course, you know, 200 years later, we look at, oh, yeah, two, almost 200 years later, we look at that as like, that was, that was the moment in time where that individual took the future prosperity of his entire lineage mm. on his back yeah. and made a decision that I'm going to build a bright future for my family. Yeah. for generations. That, what you just said right there, I think is incredibly meaningful because I think Dan and I both feel that way about what we're doing here. And I think that is exactly what we intend to do with it. The, the lucky thing though, it's going to be, a, you know, there, there's so many people that are going to kind of throw that at Bitcoiners who've been in the space for a while. I think that's one of the cool things. I'm guessing you agree, Creasis, about just doing a little bit to create some content in the space. Because in a way, it's a bit of a time capsule to go back on and say, like, we didn't just stumble into this. I, I just found this tweet I sent a few days ago. I said, years in the future, some might say, you got lucky with Bitcoin. If by lucky, they mean conviction built on hundreds and hundreds of hours of research and a diligent commitment to first principle thinking, then I guess they may be right. But um, is there an opportunity in front of us? Yes. Are we blessed to have been able to seize it? Yes. But the average Bitcoiner has not trusted they verified and they have earned the 620 acres out in Oregon, for sure, in, in, in my view. Yeah, fully agree. I want to talk a little bit more about yuppies because I think sure. that is your article, Why the Yuppie Elite Dismissed Bitcoin, I think is one of your most popular pieces. I know you explored it quite a bit with Preston. What So I do have a number of close friends in finance from college. I played college golf and a lot of golfers end up working in finance. So I still I have a lot of buddies and 
They are, I think, one area. What's it? What's it? Borrow at one, lend at two, be on the course at three. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> um, so I am like Josh and I do talk like that. Some of them are a little bit of a barometer for me. Bellwethers, if you will. I am keeping tabs on what their thoughts are uh, surrounding this, and I do. I don't mean to dismiss them because I greatly respect, admire, and look up to a lot of their views on broader markets and, and all that sort of thing. The thing that's been most compelling for me over the last four years is just how much the narrative has changed. And I'm interested if, if you have the same experience. Like this summer, I was having beers with a buddy and he's, he's now using words like interesting to describe Bitcoin interesting hedge position. And I'm like, bro, we had beers three and a half years ago in this exact same location. And you were using words like idiotic, ridiculous to describe Bitcoin. I think you've forgotten how much your tone has changed on this. And I, I call it like my three eyes. It's gone from idiotic to interesting. Eventually it will be imperative for people in the institutional space. I'm guessing you've sort of had some of that same experience with friends where they've just forgotten how much their descriptions of this asset have changed even in a two, three, four year time span. Completely. It, I would say that interesting is the, the perfect label for like how they all- That's are where we are right now. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. And, and I think part of that is like, you know, in the back of their mind, there's regret that they didn't listen or, or take interest earlier, but- now they would describe it as interesting. Um, yeah, that, that that's what's happening with my friend group too. I think it's, I, I think that's a function of the mainstream um, and and finance guys, people who are well versed in finance. I think they, you know, some of their signals for what um, is worth paying attention to are getting fired right now. Like they're, 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 these, you know signals are are happening where when you when you've got institutional investors taking interest taking positions taking board seats um and you've got people like Paul Tudor Jones a legendary macro investor saying you know this is going to be the fastest horse over the next 10 years and investors goal is to be on the fastest horse uh that matters you got Bill Miller saying that <laughs> piggybacking on that to say uh bitcoin is not a horse it's a ferrari <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, people who read the Wall Street Journal or I guess more millennial style would be to, you know, pay attention to, to Bloomberg or Zero Hedge or whatever. Um, Love Zero Hedge. Yeah, they're, they're being inundated with all these, these um, legitimizers for Bitcoin recently in, in the last couple of years. And MicroStrategy is a big one of that too. And um, Jack Dorsey being such an advocate and uh, Square it becoming a major part of Square's business, selling Bitcoin. Uh, and, the, you know, what that what that causes for Venmo, PayPal, um, all these things make sense from a business point of view and from a finance point of view. And they all point towards Bitcoin is has a bright future, but I still don't understand it. Right. Like that. That's what they come back to is like it still doesn't make sense to me. Like it's still just numbers in a spreadsheet that everybody's decided have value. And I, I guess I think about it. Um, 
there's there's a there's a, a da vinci had this concept for a bridge um so it's called the da vinci bridge where it's uh there are no there's no supports holding up the bridge um it's an interlocking of the the pieces on the bridge that support each other uh and such in such a way that um gravity then holds the bridge up even though there's no um legs for the bridge underneath it and i think about bitcoin as as it's a da vinci bridge of value where you can't point to any one thing and say that's where the value is coming from like it's the invention of digital scarcity you know it's this this function of increasing scarcity that uh has this game theoretic um impact on how markets react and this predictable mechanical um supply demand um effect as well it, it, and and the fact that you know we're living in a digital age and it's borderless and it's it's non-sovereign um central banks are being more and more irresponsible so any sort of hedge against that is more and more attractive all these things add to that picture of value but there's no one thing that says this is what's holding it up this is what's backing bitcoin and and you know without that conventional finance people are forced to say yeah i'm getting all these signals that like bitcoin is is amazing bitcoin has a future but i still don't understand it because i can't point to any centralized backing of bitcoin that makes it make sense for me and the worldview that i have been operating under for my entire you know career which is you know traditional finance their assets have backing some hard backing and there's some centralized entity that controls that that asset um so it it we're still in this holding pattern with yuppies with the mainstream with everybody of like bitcoin continues to outperform their expectations yet they still don't understand it because it is outside of their worldview and it forces people to either choose to do their homework and and build an, a worldview that accommodates bitcoin which is what you guys have done which is what i've done um or continue to write it off those are your two options and you know every every time bitcoin rallies some new slice of the traditional thinkers is forced to look into bitcoin and go down the rabbit hole and that's a one way street you don't go back from that so slowly incrementally we're onboarding the world and that that includes these finance guys but that includes everybody um and it's 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 also super interesting that the finance guys they have some advantages because they're exposed to the world of value in their day jobs and they take interest in that but they have disadvantages because they're so steeped in this existing worldview of of value investing or you know equities and real estate is everything that they are quicker to dismiss bitcoin than like a blue collar guy who's just trying to look for a good way to save money and, and grow their value over time um so I I th- I think that I don't know the yuppie hesitations and the finance hang-ups with bitcoin are what everybody's feeling just uh it just comes with its own unique problems of like they're exposed to it all the time but they're even more resistant to it because it's counter to what they've built their careers on it's a funny dynamic do you um uh, change gears a little bit here real quick do you have a good proxy there was a question somebody asked on what your recommendation would be if you like you want some exposure to bitcoin and say an ira um do you do you have a preferred proxy for that that you think is a good 
um, sub or a good replacement for actually being able to own Bitcoin, or do you not recommend that at all to anybody? Yeah, I, was, I saw that question before, um, and I guess also to to I, I never answered the previous question of uh, uh, do you FOMO in now or do you DCA? Yeah, you just ape in. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm so <laughs> bullish that I I always end up whenever I have any money free I always end up lump summing, um, but I think that might be especially true like at this moment in time if we are at the point in the bull market where things really run for the next three to six months. Hold on, um, I have to make a couple of trades here. <laughs> <laughs> we this yeah. is a classic like do as we say not as we do because yeah. we like. We do DCA, like we both DCA every single mm-hmm. day. So we are doing, okay, audience, relax. We're using Swan every day, but we have both aped in with reckless abandon in the past as well. I think that would be a fair characterization. You kind of just look at the ace. There's this asymmetric moment that anybody that really swallows the pill gets to. And you're like, okay. So I think this is the way to think it through for a lot of people. It's like, you need to be ready for an 80% drawdown, but then you also need to be ready for this thing to go two, three, four X, like short term. I mean, I think that's where you're going with the rest of the year. Like, sure, we could go down to 21 grand, but we could also be staring at $194,000 Bitcoin at Christmas. So you kind of have to... Very possible. You have to say, like, am I going to be able to sleep at night? And I think once you, whatever stage you you really digest this thing, you kind of get in your head, like, what position you're going to need to get to to sleep at night. Like, that's different for each person. But for me, I was like, I'm going to need to get here or I'm never going to sleep again. Right. And so, so that, that's like what is the impetus for the chips going into the table. Um, the the caution with that though is you really can't recommend that unless somebody has really grokked this thing because somebody that yeah. does press the chips into the middle of the table the and is unprepared for what this this wild hog presents they're going to get they're going to get bucked and then they're going to end up with an even smaller position so for the average person that's just getting started their snowball is just starting to roll downhill i think my recommendation is dca but when they come to you and say, holy shit, I think this is going to be a huge, huge deal in my life, then you're like, okay, yeah. maybe it's time for you to yeah. pony up. Pr- practically, I, I try to tell people I'm trying to orange pill to just to dip a toe, you just to buy $100, you know, whip out Cash App and buy $100 of Bitcoin and just watch it and, and then see how you feel about it. And then you're going to start to pay attention more and then you're going to want to add to that. And that's that tends to be how I try to start it but there is a point in time where you have to acknowledge that you are more bullish than you were before because you know you know more than you did when you first started and that means that you need to adjust your position sizing based on your new understanding of this thing rather than holding on to some i'm going to keep a hedge you know um and and everybody goes through that and it, I think it makes sense to try to be cognizant that that's happening to yourself and act on it when it comes because you, you can delay and, and miss out. But, um, okay, so to, to answer that other question of a proxy for 401k exposure, um, you know, micro strategy is a good answer. 
and GBTC Grayscale Bitcoin Trust uh, is a good answer. Um, GBTC obviously has its, its 2% management fee per year and it trades, it's trading currently at a, at a discount. I don't remember how big of a discount, you know, it, depending on how big of a discount it is, that could make more sense because if you follow the logic of, you know, if we, if price runs to new all-time highs and there's retail interest, suddenly again, as there always is when there's new all-time highs, people are going to try to get exposure to Bitcoin. And the easiest way to do that is by pointing some of their right. stock portfolio to GBTC and suddenly demand for GBTC goes to premium rather than a discount. So you could be getting a good deal on GBTC today. Um, MicroStrategy also seems to have like a higher beta uh, than Bitcoin, meaning that it, you know, it, it does the same moves as Bitcoin, but has a higher volatility to those moves, yeah. um, meaning it, higher amplitude. Um, and so the same sort of effect. And that's just because there's so much retail money that when things are hot with Bitcoin, they're trying to get in some, somehow, some way. And the, the two best ways to do that. What about... Um- what about mining stocks? Do you have any opinion on those like Riot or Mara or what is it? The other one? Yeah, I, I don't know enough about those to, to really weigh in on them. Um, I, I think they, they operate under the, a similar sort of, um, yeah, a similar sort of dynamic. And, and that's helped by the fact that, that this is a phenomenon in, in the gold industry too, that like a, a way that people get exposure to gold, like Warren Buffett did was, actually to, to invest in gold mining companies um because i guess it you know it feels like you're owning a more real asset that way um and i think that's part of the mental gymnastics that that traditional investors go through when they're looking at bitcoin and part of part of that you know a, a good chunk of them find more comfort in holding bitcoin mining companies rather than you know the underlying bitcoin asset but you know, if Bitcoin does take over the world of value, you're going to want to hold the underlying. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about how do I get just an incremental amount of exposure by pointing some of my 401k towards Bitcoin related assets, awesome. But, you know, don't, don't um, discount writing, you know, don't discount stacking sats as like the, the primary uh, approach. Yeah, I I do think it's imperative for people to hold the actual bare asset and to to take ownership of some of this protocol. It goes back to some of our earlier conversation. Like, here's your chance to own some of the internet of value, to have a piece of TCPIP, if you will. And if you just have exposure through your retirement fund and GBTC, like, yeah, that might be a great first step, like you said. But this is an open source protocol that's going to scale to extreme heights. And there could be a lot of opportunities and privileges that come with actually having a piece of the protocol. Uh, The other thing, like we have been exploring, um, and I think these are great products, holding the underlying in, say, a Roth IRA or a a 401k through like an Unchained Capital. And I think... That's something I'm going to continue to explore. I'm not currently doing that. Currently, I have my cold storage Bitcoin position. I have my retirement funds, which are largely in just a traditional equity portfolio with a small GBTC position. I could see moving into 
having underlying in a, say, a Roth or something. But there is also like, are you going to want to do something with this before you're 59 and a half, especially if we're talking about these valuations? And so I think for me, I'm just kind of talking out loud here. The best way to move forward with free cash flow in Bitcoin is just to buy spot Bitcoin or DCA and throw it on a hardware wallet. You guys kind of agree? Is that sort of where your yeah. heads are at? Yeah. Yep. I agree. I think that people that ask that question are probably have a significant amount of money in an IRA and they can't withdraw it because they're not old enough. So they're looking for a way to get exposure. And yeah, it makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Agreed. Chris, I'm kind of curious and feel free to not answer if you're not comfortable. But so you, you did this management consulting thing. Um, you are obviously have become just a Bitcoin mega bull. And uh, what, like, what does the future hold for you personally? Like, are you, have you already, are you planning to pivot your time, energy, and talents to Bitcoin full time? Like, what, where are you sort of at personally without providing too much detail on what you think your trajectory is going to be? Yeah, this is where um, Bitcoin creates this um, interesting existential uh, reflection for everybody who gets deep enough down into the rabbit hole. What I'm on the Bitcoin standard, right? That's my unit of account. And if Bitcoin does what I think it's going to do, there's a certain amount of, of personal freedom that, um, that I have to a limited extent today and more so in the future if Bitcoin goes in the direction I think it's going. Um, and that makes, made me go through a, a serious period of like reevaluating how do I want to be spending my time? Um, and what do I want to do? Um, and, you know, that whole process has led me more towards like, you know, what I, what I really am excited about is building a family and, um, you know, focusing my time, um, on, you know, growing well-rounded children, uh, and, you know, experiencing life really. And, um, you know, so I, it's weird that I, I wouldn't have increasingly I'm leaning towards like, um, a, a future of, of hunkering down on a family farm kind of, kind of vibe. <laughs> Right. And like trying to instill some real life lessons into into children and spend time outdoors and, you know, focus on family and and building a community and and whatever in that way, rather than in the rat race, which is what the fiat standard um, led me towards. Right. Like like if you're existing in that world, you're chasing you're chasing purchasing power, you're chasing assets. You're chasing, you're trying to grow your career, your personal net worth faster than, than the money printers um, are, are printing money. And even if you're not cognizant that that's what you're doing, it, there's something about the culture that points you towards that um, focus. Um, but when you're on a, a deflationary uh, monetary standard, one where your holdings today will appreciate in purchasing power over time 
that buys you so much more freedom and flexibility with how you're, you're going to be spending your time that I think, you know, I think Bitcoiners who who reach this level of the rabbit hole where they're switching their unit of account um, and have enough faith in Bitcoin's future that they're reevaluating how they're going to be spending their time. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating process to see play out. It's something that uh, John Ballas focuses a lot on mm, in his. Yeah. I love his podcast. Um, It's like, it's just an interesting phenomenon of, and and shows you how seismic of a shift this is for the world, um, where just by adopting a different money, my, my, the focus of my time and my interests have shifted away from chasing money and towards building a family. And it's pretty profound. It is fascinating. It sounds to me like you need to go get 600 acres in uh, Oregon. <laughs> yeah, in that, in that new Oregon uh, territory. Yeah, we're gonna. It's just everything old is new again. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, right? He's the one that had a goat named Bitcoin. Crisis is gonna start a farm out in Oregon, and that first overfed hog, <laughs> that's gonna be Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You you worked in another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, this has been fantastic. We, we could, I mean, I'm like, I still got plenty on here, but we'll chat with you again. We'll, uh, yeah, we'd love to have some respect for your time here. There's, there's one more point I wanted to bring it all, uh, tie it all out on. Send it. Yeah, please do. Full send. So, you know, we've touched on this, um, in, in several points here, but if all of, if everything that we've been talking about makes sense and, and you're, you're a guy who's trying to build um, a brighter future for your family. And you are, you are being told by the world and you know, the accumulated wisdom of the last half century that the way to do that is by getting a mortgage and you know, adding to your 401k, right? And grow your net worth through the formula that has worked <laughs> during the fiat era during during this the last 40 years where interest rates went from 15% down to 0% if you know if that's what you're that's what you've been told to do and you're you're thinking okay i guess that's the approach for me to to make a brighter future for my family but you simultaneously can recognize that the structural changes have occurred that make it so that that formula can't be as successful for the next 40 years as it has for the last 40 years. But there's a new type of um, savings technology in the same way that you know, allocating some of your income to a 401k is a, is a protected, celebrated form of savings technology um, you know, held up by preferential tax treatments in the same way that um, a mortgage it has preferential tax treatments and is a you know, celebrated savings technology. Now there's this new savings technology that is not protected by the government, but instead reinforced by its own um, protocol design of increasing scarcity. And it stands to benefit if the structure that um, allowed for the success of, of the equities markets and real estate um, if those things break down, Bitcoin is the thing that will outperform everything else. So 
I guess the the challenge is to the listeners out there of of like if you're trying to build a brighter future for your family and and trying to figure out what are the best savings technologies for for you to engage with is that is that pointing as much as you can to your 401k is that you know taking on a big mortgage and hoping to grow that home equity or is it taking a stake in this new savings technology that has increasing scarcity built into it um, in part because it's new and in, in large part because most of the world doesn't get it yet. So, you know, is what's the best path for, for you and for your family and for building a, a brighter future for generations to come? Mm. I think we both know well the said. answer to that question and very well said. Yeah. At least get started on the path you know, at least yeah. dip your toes in the water. And from there, we know what this thing does. Yeah. And, and recognize that the status quo is for you to remain on the path that other people have told you is the right path and was the right path over the last 40 years, but can no longer be the right path based on the, the hard and fast realities of where the economy is today and, and the monetary system and where interest rates are today. Yeah. Amen. Give us a handoff to you. Where can people find you and interact with your thoughts? Yeah, um, mostly on Twitter um, at Croesus, C-R-O-E-S-U-S underscore BTC. Um, I have a, a pinned tweet at the top of my profile that has all of my various articles and podcasts and um, graphics there and I think is a, a helpful um, place to, to start. That was uh, seriously one of the my favorite episodes we've done so far. Thank you. That was seriously a privilege. Crisis. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me on guys. This was a great chat. And, and yeah, like this is the demographic that, that I was thinking about this before the show of, um, you know, like if we, if we think about Bitcoin's near future here of shoring up support from the electorate, right? So that to make it such that, um, politicians can't really attack Bitcoin as as easily as they could in the past because now there's a large contingent of people who hold Bitcoin and want to see it, you know, stand on its own um, rather than be attacked. And that, you know, the backbone of the country is is working class men and women, um, blue collar folks who are just trying to, you know, seize the American dream. Uh, and Bitcoin is the best path to do that, uh, that I see for, for the 21st century. Um, and so you, if you onboard enough blue, blue collar folks to have a stake in Bitcoin, it becomes politically inviable to, to attack Bitcoin because that backbone of the country won't stand for it and, and won't reelect those types of politicians. Truth. Have a great rest of your day, Croesus. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. 
We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.